Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison and I'm here with an action-packed show to go through what was uh, quite astonishing Czech Grand Prix. And uh, well, we have so much to talk about for this week's episode. Brad Binder, where did that come from? My goodness me, KTM have arrived as a genuine force in MotoGP, as have Franco Morbidelli. And uh, well, there's so much to get through in this episode that uh, I don't think I can quite manage to do it all by myself. Therefore, I'm greatly appreciative to have a certain gentleman that resides in those lowlands in the north of Europe uh, to join me to try and uh, help me with this wild uh, task. And uh, his name is Mr. David Emmett. Hello, David Emmett. Hello, Neil Morrison. Uh, you say lowlands, but I was out cycling today and I uh, uh, reached the heady heights of 100 metres of elevation, I will have you know. Goodness me, and uh, you've got the scars to show for it. I have got the, yes, yeah, I went cycling with my wife and then sort of showed off by falling off. Right, okay, my goodness me, you're never too old to do that, it seems, in the Netherlands. Uh, David, uh, we've got so much to discuss today. Uh, what was a quite ludicrous Czech Grand Prix? I mean, I don't quite know where to start. Well, in fact, yes, I do, that's a stupid thing to say. The man who won the race, South Africa's first ever Premier Class race winner, Brad Binder. Uh, but just before we get to Brad, can you, off the top of your head, remember a weekend which was so nutty, so strange, so crazy? Yeah, we were, we were talking about this earlier. And, and I mean, like you would go back to, shall we say, 2016, the first year of the Michelins when Michelin came in and they didn't quite get it right sometimes. They were, the, the, the gap between the tiles was quite big. Or, uh, for example, Bruneau 2016, when they bought their rain tires and everyone went out on the soft and the soft uh, uh, started um, uh, uh, letting rubber go. Um, because, it, you know, the, the track was drying out so quickly. Um, Jack Miller's win in Assen, uh, in 2016, that was fantastic. Uh, Misano, the race in Misano 2015, just really utterly, utterly bizarre. Um, I mean, it, how much, is some of this down to the fact that Mark Marcus isn't, uh, isn't here, who might otherwise have walked away with it? Who knows? We'll never know because he wasn't racing. Uh, but certainly, I don't think the race lacked excitement for him not being there. Yeah, certainly not. I mean, uh, if you had told me on Sunday morning that we would have a, a podium of uh, Brad Binder, Franco Morbidelli and Johan Zarco, I think I would have uh, asked you to, to double up on your brain medicine, David. Um, it was it was a bit of a, a bit of a bolt from the blue, to say the least. I mean, it was a, it was a strange weekend in that... Well, in some respects, the the grid or the expected order was turned on its head. I mean, it was almost like uh, someone had inverted uh, what was supposed to be going on. We had uh, Alicia Spargo on the Aprilia qualifying fourth. We had the KTMs looking really good. Franco Morbidelli was there yet. The guys that were supposed to be challenging for the championship, I mean, Fabio Quartararo didn't have his best race. Maverick Vinales was 14th. Andrea Davizioso 11th. Repsol Honda managed to score just one point uh, from the entire weekend. I mean, what was what was going on? What was uh, you, you mentioned Marquez's absence? Obviously, was uh, was a factor, but there was something quite strange about the track for sure, and that I think maybe led to the the strangeness. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the track hasn't been resurfaced since 2008, and um, it's always been quite a low grip track, and it's got sort of worse over the years. It seemed particularly bad this year. Uh, also because it, it was really, it was surprisingly hot. Bruno can get, uh, 
burnout can be sort of you know both things it can either be really really cold especially in the mornings or it can be really really hot and uh, we saw track temperatures over 50 degrees which is a fairly critical temperature for the michelins they don't really um that's when you really notice that the the, the grip starts to drop uh, starts to drop off uh, and the track is just really really bumpy it gets used by cars a lot uh, and that was causing a fair few problems um if you look at the the, the, the race time too or the uh, and the qualifying you know they're they're one or two seconds down on the uh, on the race lap records uh, and also on the qualifying lap record so seriously the, the track is not in in good shape um there was a safety commission meeting on saturday afternoon and the riders demanded that um, they would not. Uh, uh, they demanded basically that, that the track be resurfaced if they're to come back next year. Um, as I understand it, uh, they have a promise that it, uh, MotoGP will not return unless the track is resurfaced. So, uh, I, I mean, I really do hope that uh, the track is resurfaced because it is just a glorious track. It's one of the best tracks on the calendar it's right up there with Mugello uh, Phillip Island uh, Assen it's a it's a proper track where you can actually uh, you know give the um, what's the expression give it his druthers just really open uh, open the gas up and let, let let the thing run out it really challenges a motorcycle uh, a, a proper MotoGP bike um, and it flows it's just a lovely flowing track where you can attack and counter attack and the race isn't over till it's over yeah, certainly not. Um, I mean, you look at some of the race records uh, across the three classes. I think in Moto3, Alex Rins in 2013 still holds the outright circuit record. Then in MotoGP, I think it was Marquez in 2016. So that shows that in the, the last couple of years, the, the riders haven't really been able to approach what they were doing, you know, uh, what, seven, six, seven years ago in certain in certain cases. Um, yeah, the bumps were, were pretty bad. I think as, as early as FP1, we saw Vinales crash out right at the start at turn 13 because of the bumps there we saw several riders come uh come a cropper in, in all three classes i mean it, it was a, a pretty critical situation um alicia Spargro doesn't really mince his words whenever he uh, he feels strongly about something and he said it was pretty much the worst uh, track surface he'd ever ridden on um and uh, i think bradley smith also said that uh, you know yeah we need to consider re uh, resurfacing this place if we're to come back here but anyway that that certainly seemed to to lead to quite a lot of um well, topsy-turvy results uh, throughout the weekend. And it was always going to be a case of uh, tyre management who could basically get their rear tyre to work over the longest uh, over the longest period without suffering a massive drop-off. Um, and, well, my goodness, like Brad Binder, what can we say, Dave? I mean, just his third Premier Class race, we saw tremendous potential from the South African at both races in Jerez. Uh, he had the pace to, to finish on the podium, to finish second, I think, in the first race, his, his first in MotoGP. Um, and we said that at the time that was a, a fantastic ride, but there were a couple of caveats there because when he was posting those lap times, he was riding pretty much by himself after he had gone off into the gravel, yada, yada, yada. But here he was outriding everyone, outriding Paul Spargaro, his more experienced teammate. I mean, this was a, this was not an ordinary ride. Oh no, no! This was this was genuinely something special, and like uh, as you said, we said after uh, the the first race in Jerez that um, uh, th that was a special ride, and his pace had been really, really good. The thing about pace is you can't fake it; you can't fake speed. There's lots of things you can 
uh, sort of get around to you can do to try to be faster. Um, but just that outright speed, there's just no way you can actually fake that. So he he clearly had the speed, uh, but then he showed that he really had the, the the racecraft too. Because when he got behind people, when he got behind Quartararo, when he got behind Morbidelli, um, he, he he waited. Bided his time, waited for the uh, uh, for the right opportunity, and the passes that he made were clean, just really, really clean. I mean, he rode around the outside of his teammate, which was almost embarrassing, really. I mean, it was just, it was almost cheeky. We knew that the KTM were, were KTM's were good because Oliveira had shown real pace, Binder had shown pace, uh, Paulus Bargro had, had shown fantastic pace. Obviously, Paulus Bargro was absolutely furious um, after qualifying. Um, because he, uh, uh, I think he'd had a red, he'd had a yellow flag um, uh, on his fast lap, and that meant that his lap had been cancelled, um, which would have put him P two. So it was it was really obvious that the KTM's were uh, onto something. I before the race, I predicted that Paul Spargo was going to win. Uh, as with all my uh, uh, predictions, it was the kiss of death. Polis Bargro didn't quite manage to win, but it was a KT, you know, it was a KTM on there. And it, you know, it just shows the progress that, that the bike has made. I mean, Binder, really, really, really special rider. Um, we saw that in, in Moto3. We did see that in Moto3. We'll come on to KTM in just a moment, but I'd like to continue speaking about Brad because, uh, well, we've, anyone that's listened to the Paddock Pass podcast in recent years will know that David and I are both huge Brad Binder fans. We've, we've saw, saw what he did in Model 3, we saw what he did in Model 2, particularly last year in Model 2, and that was just a, that was a performances of not just a, any other ordinary rider. That was quite special what we saw from him in the lower classes. However, to come up and win in your rookie season, uh, I mean, that's just a, a, whole, a whole other world, really. I mean, we're talking about guys that have won MotoGP races in their first three occasions. I mean, we're talking about Marquez, Lorenzo, uh, Danny Pedrosa, like, you know, very, very special names indeed. Um, and I loved what he did after he passed Morbidelli for the lead. He had about uh, seven or eight laps still to go and he just he cleared off. And right, right until the end, you know, whenever the, the tire drop was critical, he said the last three laps he was expecting a massive drop. He was still posting 59s, I think, uh, towards the end. And, uh, you know, eight, nine tenths of a second faster than anyone else um, that was finishing on the podium. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, because what you can often see with young, inexperienced riders when they get in that position is that, you know, the pressure gets them. They can see that the, the, the win is there and uh, it, it gets really, really difficult to maintain focus and to stay focused and, uh, you know, basically not to fall off. Um but he didn't hesitate. He just he, he stayed there. He kept the focus. He was he, and he was just blindingly fast every single lap. And that again is what's impressive. It's his consistency. His consistency of pace is just really exceptional. It really is quite exceptional. Quite uh, quite amazing to watch. Uh, just to just to finish up on Binder, Dave. I think both you and I were at the uh, Valencia Test last November. We went down to speak to Brad on the second day, the final day of the Valencia Test. I think he was uh, slowest that day out of all the the MotoGP runners. Uh, he said he had got completely lost with bike setup, position on the bike where he was supposed to be breaking all of his references. He just, after a pretty solid opening day, just 
got lost, got mired in all the details that he was having to try and understand. Yet here we are, three races into the, his debut campaign, and he's won a race. I mean, what 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 is it about his his riding that that has seen him do this? He's it, he's a really intelligent rider. He's really smart. Um, it, he understands you know what's possible. He, he's absolutely fearless. He's not afraid to take risks. He's not afraid to uh, push to, to push to the limit. But he also understands that you know the, the limit is there for a reason. You know, with, you can go you can go all the way up to the limit and, and occasionally stick your toe over. Um, but there are risks involved with with, with going it. And he understands those risks. Uh, he also uh, he's really smart in the way that he figures out how to ride. Okay, I can do this. Uh, once he's got that, once he's got one thing figured on, he can move on to the next one. He's just, he, he's a very uh, intelligent, thoughtful, analytical rider and he doesn't get upset. He doesn't bottle out. You saw him in his uh, in his championship. I mean, he basically wrapped up the, the, the uh, three uh, title in Aragon before they even got away from, uh, before they even left uh, Europe for the, uh, for the final four races. And in those sort of situations, again, it's really easy easy to lose focus because you think everything is done and um it can then start to, to to sort of slip away from you especially for relatively young relatively inexperienced riders uh but binder is just so focused and on it all of the time um but that i think is what makes that that really really stands out it, I mean, talent. Obviously, you, there's nowhere nowhere without talent. But his, what makes him exceptional is is his ability to think his way through uh, uh, through through problems and and uh, understand what needs to be done. I think if you watch uh, any of Brad's races in Model Two from around Assen last year, so basically any race in the second half of the year, you could see that his ability on the brakes was so much better than anyone else in the class and we know that basically the rc16 its strong point has always been how good it is on the brakes and in the corner entry you can just be so aggressive on the brakes if you ride it to its absolute maximum you're prepared to push and give everything into the corner and i think brad is, is one of those guys that's able to do that now it's obviously a big thing going from dunlop tires to, to midland tires and the fact that he's been able to work out how the midland front reacts when pushing the front to the limit I mean, that's seriously, seriously impressive how quickly he's done that. Um, but uh, yeah, just staggering stuff. Uh, I was in disbelief, disbelief whenever he was uh, performing that ride yesterday. I think there was one point where he got to second and you said, we were speaking in, on WhatsApp, he's going to bloody win this thing. And uh, well, he didn't just win it, he won it by five seconds. I mean, it was uh, astonishing. But as you say, it wasn't just Binder doing the business. KTM really were... Tremendous, absolutely tremendous. And really, this should have been a KTM 1-2 if we look at it. It should have been Paul Espargaro, maybe first or second. There was a bit of an incident uh, with Johan Zarco at uh, Turn 1. We'll maybe talk about that in a little bit. But KTM, what have they done for 2020 to, to bring them to this level? Because this suddenly looks like one of the best bikes on the grid. Because they've done it at Reth, they've done it here, both in very difficult track conditions, high temperatures. Yeah, I mean, this doesn't really start in 2020. This starts at the beginning of last year when they hired Danny, Danny Pedrosa. Um, uh, Pedrosa really helped them streamline their their, their testing program. Uh, obviously, he's a fantastic rider. Um, he's a fantastically sensitive rider as well. He was able to uh, basically um, 
make the the job of testing much easier by sorting the wheat from the chaff um, and then handing the good stuff to uh, Polis Bargro. Because again, last year was a difficult year for, uh, for KTM because they had uh, uh, Happy Shire in who wasn't very, who just never got on with the with the KTM in Tech Three. They had Joan Zarco who was there for what three quarters of a year, two thirds of a year, and absolutely hated the bike and never uh, again never got on with it. Uh, Miguel Oliveira was a rookie and then uh, uh, was pretty uh, pretty badly injured in a crash at uh, Silverstone and so wasn't really in, in himself again. Uh, all of the testing came down to uh, Polis Bargaro and having um, Danny Pedrosa pre-saw all of the good stuff made a huge step uh, his input was really important the engineering department was really important um they moved well they moved away they changed the the the, the chassis uh, for the winter and that seems to have made a big difference it's still a tubular steel chassis but um uh, the top tube is now uh, an oval um rather than separate circular tubes uh, welded together um that seems to have worked somehow in uh, in terms of stiffness that makes it a little bit it, it seems to give the the, the 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 frame a little bit more flex in the right places uh, which has solved their turning issues the bike is much easier to turn um it, it's much more stable uh, they've worked a lot on the electronics as well um Alicia Spargaro was um absolutely raving about the uh, about the KTM basically said it's now the most powerful bike on the grid and, and also they have the traction Alice said this Alice yes Alice said this Alice said this in his debrief on su- uh, on Sunday which was interesting he said you know when when Miguel came past me I, it, I thought I was on a Moto2 bike for a minute um, because you know he, he got past and then he was gone he was three four bike lengths away just coming out of the corner um, he said a lot of that is traction so they, they, they've got the electronics sorted they've got the chassis sorted the bike is genuinely in really good shape yeah for sure and I think another thing to add to that is they've got the suspension sorted WP suspension obviously they've always been using that since they came into the class in 2017 uh, I didn't know this until the weekend but uh, last year um, I think it was actually in Austria um, WP went to Olins and uh, basically went to one of their lead race engineers and said name your price and uh, yeah Peter Bergvall uh, who used to be a Husqvarna factory enduro rider back in the day has been uh, one of Olin's top uh, race engineers in the past decade and uh, yeah WP have prized him away and he's not working for for WP so I think that is another part of the bike where you have to say yeah they've they've made big advancements yeah absolutely it, it, it is really um because in the beginning, that was one of the one of the one of the issues with the bike is the fact that the WP suspension did not have uh, the same a very precise refinement as the um, uh, uh, as the other Erlins did, and they just seem to be missing you know the last sort of couple of percent of the, the the last details. And yeah, hiring this uh, the, the, this ex Erlins engineer away seems to have made the difference. And I mean, it's it's fascinating in a way because. It shows the the importance of humans still. So it's a technical sport. It's a technical, you know, it's a very very technical discipline. And yet, the knowledge inherent in one rider, one person, one engineer, uh, can make a huge difference. You know, individuals, uh, their intelligence, their approach, their ways of thinking, that can still make a big difference. And that that's what keeps the just makes the sport so so fascinating. 
And it's worth pointing out that uh, ever since they came in to the, the MotoGP class in 2017, essentially the two sides of the garage are made up with a lot of ex-Repsol Honda technicians, whether it be just engineers or mechanics or, or suspension guys. I mean, uh, Mike Leitner, obviously the team manager of uh, Red Bull KTM, the factory team, he used to work for Repsol Honda. And whenever he was basically assembling his crew, it was almost like uh, we've seen with Wilco Zeelenberg with the uh, Petronas SRT Yamaha squad. He had the uh, the experience and the, the human relationships to basically come to certain technicians who were at Repsol Honda at the time and say, hey, we've got a new interesting project. Come and join us. And uh, even from the, the very first year when they were rookies, it was still a MotoGP standard team with bags of bags of big, big level experience. Yeah, exactly. And not just the experience. I mean, they have the experience, they have the knowledge, uh, they have the ability. But also, when you go to the KTM box, it feels like a team. Um, there is a real sense of camaraderie. There's a real sense of, you know, we're all in this together. And that makes such a huge difference as well. Um, it, it makes such a huge difference just in terms of competitiveness because it means everyone is working on that little bit harder because they're all working you know, they're working for their employers, of course. They're working for their rider, of course. Um, they're working to satisfy their own sense of ambition, of course. But they're also well, they're working for their mates. You know, they're working for their friends. They they are they're working for the team, and they they you can really feel that. And I think that is in MotoGP is about you know that last one that mythical last one percent, and this is just one of those things which gives you that little bit extra, which can give you an advantage. Uh, just to end this segment, um, I remember after Paul Spargro scored the factory's first podium in MotoGP at Valencia 2018, um, Red Bull obviously have a very plush hospitality unit and we were down there. That's where the riders do their debriefs. We were down speaking to Bradley Smith. It was his final race for KTM 2018, the, the final race in November. We just happened to be in there whenever Paul Spargro came back with the champagne and his trophy from the podium and the entire team was basically there together we saw Pitt Byrer we saw Paul we even saw Bradley get up and give speeches to everyone and yeah absolutely what you said David it was just a this is us we're together in this everyone has contributed to this moment and it was very interesting listening to Paul and Pitt speak at that time because they were like don't think that this is it guys we've still got a long way to go this is just the beginning and uh, yeah there's always been that feeling with KTM that um, it wasn't just going to be a factory that came in and would be content with sixth place or top six finishes. It was there to eventually to win. And uh, everything they've done so far, you have to say, has been, well, hats off, chapeau. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, they started this as a five-year project, and at the end of the fifth year, they had to be challenging for the championship. Uh, well, we are in year four now, I think. Uh, yeah, and they are, you know, they're right where they need to be. They're winning races, which is what they need to be doing. Uh, they're competitive just about every single race, which is what they need to be doing. Uh, Miguel Oliveira said that if he hadn't qualified where he uh, where he had back in, I think, thirteenth. Yeah, um, uh, he, he felt he was really angry because if if you look at his pace, his pace was uh, about a second. Uh, uh, it would have put him a couple of seconds behind um, uh, behind Brad Bender, uh, and just uh, you know just ahead of uh, Franco Morbidelli. So it's you know 
it could have been a it could have been a KTM one two. There was it could have been maybe even a, a KTM clean a, a clean sweep if uh, you know if Paul Spargo had been there if Oliveira had been. I mean, these are all you know ifs and buts. But still, it's clearly the bike is is properly uh, competitive. Um, I've, I have one a fun stat for you, Neil. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, Dr. Martin Raines on Twitter saying that this was the first uh, the first win by a uh, manufacturer not either in not either from Italy or Japan since 1972 or 73, which was Kim Newcomb on the uh, on the Koenig. Which I I love that. I absolutely love that. Uh, uh, love that stat. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Uh, we're going to have to rein ever so slightly on your parade KTM I'm very very sorry and discuss the Paul Espargaro incident with Johan Sarko at turn one uh, I was watching back the race after it happened last night and watched rewatched the incident with Zarko uh, it seems to me Dave that Paul I think it wasn't either rider's fault it was it was a bit of a racing incident but if you look at what was happening in the race when Paul did that he basically made a mistake trying to pass Quartararo into the final complex ran wide, then ran wide again at turn one. And as he was doing this, he could see Binder basically escaping just ahead of Quartararo in second and going towards Morbidelli. And I think suddenly Paul realized that, uh, hold on a second, uh, this win, which I sort of felt assured about, is uh, is not is might, might be in danger. And he maybe started to make a few mistakes. Uh, and then obviously had that contact with Zarco. I mean, is that uh, is that a fair assessment? Or? Yeah, I mean, it was clear that that Paul was really pushing just from the mistakes he was starting to make. Uh, and and I mean, you have to say it's a, a racing incident because it doesn't happen if he doesn't run wide at uh, what is it at uh, 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 turn one? You know, he was he was wide at thirteen, uh, came onto the straight, tried to get part, uh, you know, tried to attack again into turn one, was a little bit too wide. It doesn't happen unless when he when he went wide. If he doesn't go wide, um, Zarko can't come in the inside because you know Zarko's just holding his line. He held a really tight line through there, something that he showed that he was capable of when he actually did the long lap penalty, which was some of the most astonishing riding I think I've seen in a long time. Um, uh, but yeah, that was that was really uh, yeah, Zarko was at the right place. Uh, Espargaro went a little bit wide. They both came back. To try to occupy the same piece of tarmac, there, you know, two motorcycles in one piece of tarmac doesn't go. Espargaro came off worse because he was on the outside. It reminded me a little bit of what happened in 2018 at um, uh, at uh, Jerez with uh, uh, Lorenzo and Dovizioso and Danny Pedrosa when you know basically the same thing happened they all tried to occupy the same piece of tarmac and uh, it didn't quite work out the way that any of them hoped yeah, i wonder well paul espargaro the feelings he must have had last night uh, i thought it must have been quite similar to uh andrea davizioso the time that ianone broke ducati's dry spell in the, the premier class in austria 2016 davizioso was mortified he had always envi- envisioned that it was going to be him that would end the uh, the winless streak and i imagine paul espargo absolutely was the same um although he's probably delighted thinking okay they've got a race winning bike yeah to be to be done like that by your teammate i mean it's uh that's a that's a bitter pill to swallow 
Yeah, and the other thing is that uh, I think the relationship between Paulus Bargaro and Brad Binder is a good deal uh, better than it ever was between uh, the two Andreas in uh, Ducati, Dovicioso and Iannone. They're very, very different characters. And yeah, I don't, I don't think they were, they would be compatible. I don't think Tinder would be lining them up. <laughs> yes, yes, okay. So uh, KTM first victory, outstanding achievement, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be the first of many. I'm just thinking loud here. We're in Austria. Ducati isn't going well. Mark Marquez isn't going to be here. Yamaha is down in power. I mean. We could maybe see a KTM winning in Austria. I, I don't think it's out of the question. I think it's absolutely possible. I mean, the, uh, Austria is going to be different different because uh, we have a different uh, tyre, because uh, a different rear Michelin, um, uh, because of the stresses in, in – I mean, this is the fastest track on the circuit. Uh, sorry, the first, yes, the fastest track on the calendar. Um, the stresses in the rear tyre are very high, and so uh, Michelin bring a special stiffer carcass to be able to cope with the loads. Um, that takes away some of uh, Ducati's issues, which we shall talk about much later. Um, and so it should give them a chance again. Certainly the Ducati riders were saying, you know, we can't wait to get to Austria with and, and, and race with a different casing. So uh, I think the Ducatis are going to be there, but even if the Ducatis are there, you know, Brad Bender is full of, you know, he, he's got that first win. You know, he's popped his cherry and that's the most important thing. It make, it takes all of the stress away. It takes away all of the, um, um, uh, all of the pressure. Now he can just get on a race. Paul Espargaro was robbed and wants revenge. Miguel Oliveira will feel, you know, this is my chance. Next year in the in the factory team, I want to be able to go to the factory team with a with a win under my belt. So yeah, I mean, and you know they are going to ride very hard. The one question mark I have about Austria is obviously. Uh, it's in the mountains. It's likely to rain. Uh, the raining rain is is a real problem at Austria. It's, the track is not really safe in the rain. Uh, I wonder if we are going to see. I wonder if that's going to be a problem. Okay, David. So we've uh, I think we've spent enough time waxing lyrical about KTM and their astonishing progress in 2020. Um, let's move on to our next uh, topic of discussion, which is Yamaha, because uh, it was a really interesting weekend for the factory Yamahas. We have three Yamahas in the top three positions in the championship. I think that's the first time in MotoGP history that that has happened. We've got Quadraro still leading, Vinales still second, Franco Morbidelli now up into third position. It was a a weekend of contrast, I think we could safely say, within uh, the Yamaha camp because uh, Morbidelli got his first MotoGP podium, richly deserved after uh, the heartache of retiring at the Andalusian Grand Prix. Uh, Quattararo, in my opinion, actually rode pretty well, pretty intelligently, didn't do anything stupid, came home and collected some points. And Rossi, of course, uh, made a, a pretty impressive comeback from 10th on the grid to finish 5th. Yet, Vinales, down in 14th, what was that all about? That was a, a bit of a shocker. That was uh, Maverick kind of returning to the dark old days of uh, some of his more uh, untenable moments, you would maybe say, uh, in the factory Yamaha squad. Uh, but however, let's start with uh, Morbidelli, because first, the uh, MotoGP podium for him, he has made such a massive, massive step from 2019 to 2020. Well, where does it come from? Uh, I mean, it has... It's down to his teammate, I suppose you could say. I mean, we saw him uh, struggling last year. Um, I mean, 
he had a he had a half decent he had a decent season last year when he if you view it in isolation. But the trouble is you can't view it in isolation because his teammate came in, uh, got a bunch of podiums, got a bunch of poles, and uh, as a rookie, just absolutely shocked everyone. That really sort of took a lot of attention away from uh, Morbidelli, and it shook Morbidelli up as well. He said, uh, "He said on Sunday, you know, like this was I. I, I saw what happened with um, uh, with Fabio, and I realised I had to work a bit harder. I had to take it more seriously. He did work harder. Uh, he." Um, uh, he worked harder. He, he concentrated more. He was fitter. He was uh, just more. And um, basically, you know, his ambition. He allowed. He gave his gave, uh, gave his ambition free reign. He actually realised that. You know, he really wanted this, and it wasn't going to come to him naturally. So yeah, it's just effort. I think this is just effort. Seems to be uh, yeah effort. I liked his line on uh, on Sunday. He said that uh, obviously he's of a slightly Brazilian heritage as well as uh, being Italian. He said he's still got that bit of Brazil in him that uh, likes to party, likes to enjoy himself a little bit. Certainly over the winter months, and uh, he said that the lockdown was fine. He was just training, keeping himself in shape that entire time, um, and. Uh, more training, less party, I think was the, the four <laughs> words that he said. <laughs> so um, so Franco certainly seems to be taking it a little bit more seriously away from the track um, and just seems to be a bit smoother on the bike as well. Um, has seemed to have adapted himself fully because uh, we, have to, we have to remember he was coming to the M1 from a year on a very, very difficult Honda, which is a vastly difficult, uh, different bike. And, uh, you know, it's not everyone that could just jump on a, a completely different motorcycle and, and suddenly have cracked it, have, have understood completely how they need to ride. Um, so, uh, yeah, kudos to, uh, kudos to Franco. Why was Quartararo unable to run with his teammate? Uh Basically, just the tyres. I mean, like, uh, Quattararo looked really, really strong all throughout uh, practice and qualifying. Um, uh, but he was struggling to make his tyres last. The, the, I mean, the, the, the tyre, uh, this came down to managing the tyres. And Morbidelli was just much better. He was smoother than Quattararo. Um, he was gentler than uh, uh, on the tyres with Quattararo. Maybe, I think... I. I think it was Maverick uh, um, uh, who said, uh, you know, you have to remember he's, he's got a different, or maybe it was Valentino who said he's got a different engine. So maybe maybe the 2019 engine configuration uh, is a little bit gentler on the tyres than the, 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 than the, than the 2020 uh, configuration. But I think Quattararo just pushed a little bit too hard um, and was expecting the same kind of consistency at... Uh, that he found at Jerez, but Jerez is a very, very different circuit. Um, much smoother, you know, resurfaced last year. Uh, it's got much more grip. Um, it was, it, it gave him the, the opportunity to ride the way that he wanted to ride. And he wasn't quite ready to deal with the way that the, um, uh, the, the way that Bruno needed to be ridden. Not for 21 laps. Certainly. Um, also, if you look back at uh, history, I mean, Quadraro has always been fast at, uh, at Hareth. He loves that circuit. That's one of his favorite tracks. Um, knows it very well from his days in the uh, FIM Junior Model 3 World Championship. I was going back through his uh, his records yesterday, Dave, and his, his previous best finish at Brno across all three classes was a seventh place, and that was in MotoGP last year. Um, his, his showings there in, in Model 2, Model 3 were 
nothing short of disastrous. So it's never been a great track for him. Um, and still was pretty quick in FP4. It looked really good. But uh, he said... Um, after the uh, after the race, that uh, as early as the third turn on the first lap, that uh, it became pretty obvious he had a massive rear end slide when he just opened the throttle ever so slightly, and that was uh, that was a sign that uh, yeah, this is going to be a long afternoon. Um, but um, can we can we look at this as a as a positive ride in the the context of of other events? Yeah, I mean, uh, the championships are won on the bad days, not on the good days. I mean, on the good days, you have to take, uh, get the win. Um, but on the good days, you actually have a chance of the win. I mean, Mark Marquez has been the master of this. I mean, Mark Marquez has won uh, lots of championships on consistency, even though it doesn't look like it because he wins so much. But what's made him unbeatable is the fact that, you know, when he's not on the top step of the podium, he was second or third or fourth. He was never... 8th or 19th or 14th um, the way that where, where Maverick Vinales uh, finished, uh, finished up and in fact Maverick said that he said after, uh, afterwards you know uh, if you want to win a championship you can't afford to finish 14th so yeah th this is this to me it was you know it was disappointing he was expecting much more but it was enough when we get to the end of the season whenever that is uh, I, I think he's going to be he's going to look back at at Bruno and think this is that's that's where I saved it this won't be where he won the championship this will be where he saved the championship yeah you would certainly say that um, it had some some echoes of uh, Casey Stoner's first championship year with Ducati and he had uh, he had smoked them all in the first couple of races then he went to Jerez which was uh, never a kind circuit to, to him or to Ducati and I think he went round in fifth or sixth and uh, afterwards it was like oh bad result because he he had been beaten by Rossi but when you looked back at it and you thought actually that was a really mature ride for a guy of his age just to, to bring it home in decent points scoring position um, so yeah I think uh, I think you're absolutely right Quintero will eventually look back at this uh, Bruno race and think that was uh, that was a pretty crucial ride in the grand scheme of things yeah especially considering uh, all the people he finished in front of Yes, yes, exactly. Which leads me on to my next point of uh, of conversation. Maverick Vinales, 14th. Uh, what can you say about Maverick Vinales? Uh, apart from what he said himself, you know, if you want to win a championship, you can't afford to finish 14th. Uh, again, Vinales seemed to be caught out with the same old problems, which is the track is, had, had changed after Moto 2. Conditions were different. Um, track temperatures were actually a little bit cooler on Sunday than they had been on uh, uh, on the Saturday. But it was it was not what he was expecting, and he found it difficult to adapt. He you know, didn't have a fantastic start. He got overtaken by a lot of people. Uh, it was just, it was a thoroughly underwhelming performance. It was thoroughly underwhelming. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's quite frustrating sometimes. It must be quite frustrating if you're on Maverick Vinales' side of the garage. You know, these, these things, these moments keep coming up that um, basically deprive him of the, of the chance to, to challenge at the front. I mean, Mark Marquez isn't here. This should be Maverick's year, right? But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, you know, he, he can't deliver. The one difference with previous years is that he was, uh, I mean, you know, we used to draw straws to go and talk to Maverick if it had a bad race because, um, it was, I mean, you know, you'd want to go over and give him a great big hug, um, just because it was so depressing. But, um, 
Not this time. This time he seemed, I mean, he was resigned. He was disappointed. Um, he was resigned to accepting that he'd had a really terrible race. But um, he wasn't dejected. He wasn't blaming anyone. Uh, one journalist tried to get him to have a go at the tyres and he, uh, but he wouldn't have any of it. I don't want to talk about the tyres, he said. He wasn't looking for excuses. He just sort of like said, you know, I didn't have the feeling. I couldn't push and that's it. And they just have to, they just have to fix it. But you know, with Maverick Vinales, this is going to happen again at uh, a couple of uh, uh, at a couple of races, and you have to wonder whether he's going to be able to do enough to win a championship at the end of the uh, at the end of the year. Yeah, and you start to look at Vinales with uh, the likes of Quartararo, uh, Brad Binder coming through. Um, you know, this is this is his chance really, um, because those guys are only going to get better. Yeah, exactly, and also the the fact that uh, Quartararo and Vinales didn't score a lot of points. Um, means that, you know, when Mark Marquez does come back uh, uh, racing again, which we presume is going to be Misano, um, his deficit is not going to be as bad as it could be. I mean, it's not going to be uh, an impossible task when he comes back if they keep on scoring these entirely m- mediocre uh, results. That's true, yeah, because if Mark does come back and he's, he's pretty strong, pretty fit, um, you know, you're going to be looking at a guy that's been first second more or less every weekend yeah yeah um it was interesting listening to vinales just to back up what you said about um him taking responsibility after qualifying uh you saw that uh he wanted to do a two-stop strategy and basically he pitted uh too late into the session um he felt really good with his second bike wanted to continue with that but they needed to change the tire got the timing all wrong didn't get out for his uh, third and final run and uh, as a result finished fifth and uh, he was really frustrated at the end of qualifying you could see him banging the tank and gesticulating angrily and uh well my first thought was oh the team are going to get going to going to get a rinse in whenever he's speaking to us later but he said no it was my mistake uh i, I uh, lacked the judgment to or I, my, my timing was all wrong basically so yeah there is that side where he is maturing he is growing up and uh that is one positive, I guess, you could take away from what was a, a pretty bad weekend. Oh, speaking of bad weekends, we haven't even got started yet because uh, Ducati, well, in some respects, it was it was decent because they have uh, Johan Zarco coming up, finishing on the podium. That was uh, that was surprising. Pole position as well. First pole since uh, Sepang 18. First podium since Sepang 18 as well um, on a GP19. Avintia's first ever podium in the MotoGP class. Um but it doesn't make for pretty reading when you look down the field and Jack Miller's in ninth, uh, Andrea De Vizioso's in 11th, Danilo Petrucci's in 12th. I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty ghastly. This was supposed to be a Ducati circuit. They finished second and third last year behind Mark Marquez. And it's bad and it's, it's worrying because you speak, to the, you speak to the factory guys and they don't know what's going on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was it was really interesting talking to uh, uh, Andrea Dovicioso, especially after talking to Jack Miller. Jack Miller uh, looked like he wanted to be anywhere else and doing anything other than racing a MotoGP uh, or racing a Ducati MotoGP on Sunday at Sunday night. He was thoroughly miserable. Um, uh, obviously. To him, 
the issue is simple. It's the tyres. We have this new uh, Michelin rear tyre with the soft casing, and um, the bike isn't well, isn't behaving the way that it that it should. And he feels that that has just robbed him of any chance of being competitive. Um, Andrea Dovicioso said, "You know, yes, it's yes, it's the tyre, but like Joan Zarco was on the podium." And Pekka Banyaya was very fast at uh, 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 the second race in uh, in Jerez. And, you know, until he fell off in practice, he was fast as well. Uh, so it's there is obviously something there. He said what he seemed to be saying, he was trying not to give too much away, but what he seemed to be saying is uh, we've been looking at this all wrong. We've been approaching this all wrong. We've been looking at our data from the past three years, looking at all the things which helped us then and trying to do those again. But the tyres have changed, so it's different. So those things don't work. So maybe we have to do something else. We have to try something else. We have to look at what Zarco is doing and what Banyaya is doing. And certainly both Zarco and Banyaya have, uh, you know, they have no experience, or, well, Zarco has no experience with last year's bike or last year's tyre. Uh, Banyaya has one year on the Ducati and that was a, that was on a GP18 and it wasn't particularly successful um, and was never really competitive. So he's come back with a fresh mind, a fresh approach, a fresh attitude. He doesn't have the same expectations. So I think that what Ducati need to do is change their expectations and, and just approach this as a completely, almost as a completely sort of new project, if you like. They, um, they, they, they can't break. We all, we always know that, uh, or we have always known that Ducati is really strong in the braking zone. Davizioso is one of the strongest breakers on the grid. Um, yet he's saying that he's losing close to a tenth of a second in pretty much every braking area. Um, and he said that this is just unacceptable. I mean, this is, uh, this is just, this is just very strange indeed. Is it all, it must all be done to, to the tyre, Ryan? Well, the tyres are the same for everyone. Uh, so um, there are other uh, uh, there are other factories who are doing it. For example, Yamaha are braking much better with this tyre because they can use it to slow the bike better. It is more difficult to get right. The problem for Ducati is that they haven't figured out how to use this bike, uh, uh, how to use the rear to slow the slow the bike properly. Um, they haven't figured out the you know the right configuration for their machine uh, to to get this thing to work. Um, in a way, it's it's sort of odd because Michelin up and well before the the the, the pandemic, Michelin were working on a new front tire. Uh, which gives a little bit more support. It was supposed to be introduced in 2021, and it would have been really interesting to see what would have happened if that tire had come in in 2021, which might have uh, sorted out and helped some of the Ducati's problems. But that's been postponed until 2022 because you know they, they haven't been able to test the uh, uh, this tire, uh, and so Ducati are now stuck with this tire. And they've got to just they've just got to figure it out. It's as simple as that. They can't slide it either on braking or on corner exit as successfully as uh, as they had previously. But you know, just look at what Joan Zarco did with the with the bike. He was fantastic, and again. To talk about the long lap penalty after the clash with um, Paul Spargaro, race direction awarded him a long lap penalty, which, to be honest, at uh, Bruneau is a bit of a joke because, as you know, the outside of turn seven, uh, I think he lost to 
or maybe two seconds going through the uh, going through the long lap penalty. Um, but the way he went through there, absolutely scorching. He absolutely flew through that uh, through the through that corner uh, and and still managed to get a lot of uh, a lot of speed and very very precisely. He was so precise and so able to hold such a tight line um, uh, with that bike, and that was that was what was impressive. That was also a sign that okay, yeah. Maybe other riders are having problems with this with this uh, tire. They can't get it to 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 stop the bike or to uh, get the bike to turn the way that they that they want it to. Especially you know once you because you're braking and then there is a there is a moment where you release the brake and you carry the speed and the, uh, before you get back on the the the, the throttle again. Uh, and that seems to be that that mid corner part seems to be a, a problem for a number of bikes and a number of riders. Didn't seem to be a problem for Jean Sarko because he was able to just, you know, just cruise through and, and, and ride no problem, just to hold a really tight line, no problem. So it's a puzzle which can be solved, but it's a very, very complicated one for Ducati to, to solve. But they just need to find the right places, places and pieces and put them in the right place. Mm, absolutely. I think one of the interesting things was Zarko confirmed that uh, I don't think he rode a Ducati throughout preseason because he missed the tests last year because of his leg injury whenever he was hit by, was it Lecona's bike in, in Valencia uh, at the final race? Um so he's only had experience with this year's rear tyre with the Ducati. So he has no previous reference of what you have to do in braking or how you, you understand it. And it was interesting, one of the things David Silso said about Banyaya, he said what he did in braking last year wasn't how you, you should brake with the Ducati. It was, it was kind of the wrong way to effectively enter a corner. But he's a little bit smoother and what he's doing now is is just what this rear tire needs. So it's yeah, it's it's almost like it's going to going to need the, the riders to do a bit more on their end to, uh, to 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 get the best out of it. Which is, um, I mean, you know, Davizioso is what thirty four years old now. It's uh, it's a bit late in his career to be uh, asking him to change his style quite considerably. Um, and uh, over the weekend, Dave um, Manuel Pacino, one of our one of our colleagues and the occasional contributor to the uh, the Paddock Pass podcast, uh, was in touch with me. He had some. Uh, some interesting information because he had spoken to Michelin's Piero Taramasso, the, the head of Two Wheel Motorsport, um, earlier in the year. And he was just sending me some of the things that Taramasso had said about this new rear tire for this year. And he was saying that, you know, when you have extra grip in the rear, that pushes the front and you basically have to change so much on the bike, the weight distribution, the suspension settings, almost you have to change the philosophy of the bike, he said. And that basically consequently forces the riders to change their riding style. You cannot exit as before. You cannot brake as before. And it seems that Ducati are still trying to do what they did last year uh, or adapt what they had last year because the 2020 bike, by all accounts, is quite similar to what they were riding last year. Um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a puzzler. It's definitely a puzzler. And uh, suddenly this, uh, this doubleheader in Austria doesn't seem to be uh, certainty where they can they can bank points like they have in, in previous years. Well, yeah, I mean, like, like I said, the benefit for them is that we have a different tire here. We have the we have the different casing, the stiffer casing, which uh, they have to have just to stop the thing from exploding because of the stresses which it placed on the tire, accelerating so hard and going three trillion miles an hour. But that will make it that will make it a little bit easier for for the Ducatis here. Uh, but yeah, I mean, coming into the race, knowing that you've got everything sorted, 
is difference to coming into a race and thinking, well, all right, we've got a slightly different tire. I hope it's going to work. What happens if it doesn't work? Um, uh, trying to uh, uh, trying to figure things out. So it's it is going to be. It's it's not the. Uh, you know, the, the simple gimme, the, 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 the automatic victory, which you can chalk up to Andrea Dovizioso and or Jack Miller and or Danilo Petrucci. It is going to be, um, a hard fought, uh, race. And especially if Alicia Spargaro is right about the KTMs and the KTMs are that m- m- much more powerful, uh, and they do have the traction, uh, then, uh, and they are not having the same issues with, the, with, with the rear Michelin, all of a sudden, it's a very different kettle of fish altogether. It's a very different proposition, and uh, you know, it's it's not just chalk twenty five points in uh, Andrea Dovizioso's column. It's uh, you know, it's a, it's an all out slugfest. So it, it should be uh, quite exciting. It's also going to be interesting to see how the Yamahas go there as well, because the Yamaha has been getting better at Austria, um, significantly better. So yeah, it's it, it's not just the automatic. It, it, it's not as a it's not a foregone conclusion the way that it was perhaps in previous years. Very interesting indeed, David. And uh, well, what an effect this new Michelin rear tyre is having on some of the results that we've seen so far in 2020. MotoGP is not uh, the only series that was uh, running in action this weekend because we also had a World Superbike round at Brno that was packed full of action. Another stellar weekend at Portimao for world champion Jonathan Ray. Uh, also, interestingly, World Superbike is another championship that uses a controlled tyre. And we're delighted to say that our regular World Superbike uh, reporters, uh, Stephen English and Gordon Ritchie, uh, were in Portimao to give us a little bit of an update about what happened there in this uh, pretty enthralling 2020 World Superbike Championship. And also a bit of a discussion on the effects that a controlled tyre has on a series. So passing over to Stephen Gordo. Thanks, David. Thanks, Neil. It's been an interesting weekend. And uh, obviously, Gordo, here in Portimao, we've been able to see a little bit of a change in fortunes compared to what we had in Herat. Down in Spain, it was all about the Ducatis here. It's been a very different story. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I think a lot of people were surprised. Uh, they're still uh, there or thereabouts, but they're certainly not in the dominant form that they were when it was much warmer in, uh, in Herat and a bit of a different racetrack. Um, it seems to be that Jonathan Ray, as a rider, and his package just seems to work a lot better around here than anybody else um, at this point. Still got some racing to go, but it was uh, it's it's a big change considering we thought we saw a trend in starting in Jerez and it's also been warm here. Not boiling crazy hot like it was in Spain, but it's been pretty warm and dry. Um, and we've had a pretty much of a pendulum swing, which is great. Yeah, we're recording this Sunday morning, so we've seen race one, we've seen quite a bit of action over the course of the week, and like you said, Gordon, we've Bare on 50 degrees track temperature. It hasn't been cold here in, in uh, Portimao, but a lot cooler than what we had in Herat. We've had the wind. We've got a very different track situation here. And certainly looks like what we expected. Jonathan Ray had to come here, make sure he picks up three wins and tries to close down that gap in the championship. As we record this, he's won race one and you'd certainly expect him to win the other two. It, it looks a good bet. Uh, he took his 10th win at this track yesterday and he looks good unless something happens. I think he's still going to be the bookies' favourite. Now, it's racing and that doesn't mean it's going to be the way it is. But it's it was pretty impressive from day one when they got here. 
uh, to work out what to do for the races and then go and do it. And Johnny is old motocross man that he is, uh, loves the nature of this track, brought up in BSB, used to moving the bike around in here and places like Kimmel, he always says it's more of a rider track. It's more where you put your, when the tyres start to go, it's where you put your body on the bike, how you approach it. Um, it's, it's much more rider significant track than some other places. Um, and even the main straight here, you're approaching the main straight fourth gear, already going very fast. So the overtaking ability of the, the, the faster engines is slightly negated. Um, so again, that's one potential disadvantage that even in a dogfight, if it ends up in dogfights today, that it may make a small difference, but it may not be as profound as uh, some other tracks. What's been the biggest issue that Ducati's had here this weekend? Obviously, you look at Chaz Davis, he's struggled, particularly in that final sector all the way through the weekend. Yeah, Chaz is uh, not really settled. Um, I think Reading just finds the Ducati a more difficult uh, animal here to, to control. The very nature of the racetrack means that if you've got a nice smooth setup, uh, you're going to have to compromise on it because the bike is moving, jumping, landing, uh, constantly changing, uh, working the suspension really hard. He just didn't feel happy on it, is what he said on the first day here and, and reiterated that yesterday. He just doesn't feel as confident as he did in, in Hareth and he felt he looked and rode very confidently there. So it just shows you the change of racetrack, however refined this sport gets can make a real change in the results because I don't think Scott had a bad week coming up to here thinking, oh, I had a terrible Hareth weekend. He had a great Hareth weekend leading the championship. And I don't think he's lost, he's obviously not lost any motivation or any push or any desire. So it is just a technical rider feel confidence at a track which is maybe like Imola in a normal season. The one where you need the most confidence, the most blind entries, the most risk required the most movement from the bike. Um, this is a this is a track you really have to feel good to go fast. And even when you go fast, you know you'll have shimmies and shakes and things you weren't expecting, especially when you're riding with other riders. And that's another aspect of this weekend. He was in with all the other riders because of his qualifying. He wasn't, you know, he didn't get clear. He did, you know, he was in with a lot of other riders. Um, and that, that was a big difference from Areth. We're going to keep the superbike segment of the show pretty tight this week just because obviously in Bruno it looks like there's been quite a lot of action all the way through this week. A lot of big storylines with the Repsol Hondas at the back of the field and qualifying, Davi down the, the order, Ducati struggling. We've had riders at the fronts of the field and qualifying that weren't expected. But Gordo, I'm interested to ask you about a topic we've talked about a lot. And this is a weekend where we've got a proper action-packed weekend because we've got MotoGP, World Superbikes, BSB all on at the same time and it looks like the where the talent's coming from for world superbikes has changed it used to be where you'd look at bsb and you'd see right there's half a dozen riders that could potentially make the step up but now it looks like in the superbike paddock you're looking to the grand prix paddock to try and find those couple of riders that might be able to make the step yes and uh that's a very noticeable change um it, there's a lot of reasons for it partly technical a lot of the national championships are not running the same level of technology as world superbike does uh, even though world superbike has reduced the level of uh, super high tech and high performance uh, parts that are allowed in the bikes even though it's more accessible to have a superbike now a full world superbike it's probably cheaper if you had to build one from scratch than it's ever been um, no matter what people tell you about the good old days, they had pretty heavy tuning allowed in those days. Um, there's an awful lot of uh, 
classes that are uh, their own world now. They have their own issues to deal with. Moto America's rebuilding. Australia went through a few years ago, went through a few periods of uh, difficulty uh, in terms of maintaining a national class the way it should have been. They've now turned that around. But the problem is that the, the trend, unfortunately, is it seems that national championships are not just naturally producing riders ready, oven ready to come here and show people the way around. The other problem is wild cards. We don't have those wild cards where someone from UK, from Australia, from, we don't even go to Japan, but Japan, there was a lot of territories. The local hotshots would turn up and sometimes show the regulars the way home. Really world-class riders would get shown up when they went to Donington or other racetracks. How many times did we see the local guys, whatever nationality they were, the local guys at Laguna would win races? And it's we don't have that anymore. The, the cut to wild cards was one of the biggest problems this championship had after the big single make tyre change and a million other things. This is a very big subject, so we'll keep it brief on certain things. But there's a lot of reasons why. But ultimately, the thing that's slightly worrying for this championship for the future is I don't see anybody that's just going to walk from national racing anywhere into here and, and do the business for a factory team. And it, this championship has been that, whether it was Wildcats or whether it was a next hot kid coming from any of those big territories, would come here and do something almost immediately. A year transition, etc. That isn't happening anymore and I don't see how it is going to happen and that is a big concern. Whereas in MotoGP, there's always a great big swing of talent there. It's the big class and they've got all these training schemes to take kids there. So that guy goes in through his career, does several years, and through circumstance, through just not being the next Mark Marquez, doesn't get a ride one year, what does he do? He comes here. And invariably, that guy is trained, has knowledge of electronics, has knowledge of, uh, has to race every session like it's the last session, or else he qualifies 25th. It's Grand Prix racing. Uh, and he, that means he can come here and generally do a job. And... That is a slight concern because the whole idea that we keep hearing from the organisers and everybody else is they want World Superbike to have its own unique character and they don't want it to become second rate and they don't want it to become mini MotoGP. Unfortunately, when you look at the, the, the riders that are coming over, most of, the, most of our potential for someone who can take on Jonathan and the best guys are XGP riders. Scott Redden, for example. You think how many came through the last, look at Supersport. Most of the last Supersport champions have all been ex-Moto2 and all the main competitors now, with the exception of one or two, have all come from the Moto2 class. So this is an issue that has to be addressed. How do we find, when these guys start retiring, who's coming through that's better than them or going to be better than them, showing at this stage in their career they're going to be better than them? And I don't think there's an awful lot. I desperately hope I'm wrong. Yeah, I think whenever you look over the last few years, you look at what Johnny Ray was able to do whenever he was coming through in BSB. He was the youngest pole sitter as a 18-year-old. He's a 19-year-old, challenged for the championship, winning races, 20-year-old, and then leaves to go to World Supersport and then comes into the final round in World Superbikes, immediately on the second row of the grid, yeah. immediately very competitive. And it does show that you can do that as a young rider. We saw it in Britain with Camier and Crutchlow and... Lowe's when he came through as well but we haven't really seen it for a long time coming from Britain and there isn't really anyone that you look at when you talk to people in, in BSB that genuinely believe 
Ryder X could come through from, from Britain anymore? I've heard a few names over the years. Um, I mean, many years ago, uh, I asked the British journalists who's going to be the next guy, and almost to a man, they turned and said, Carl Crutchlow. That guy, Crutchlow, kid's really good. Um, and obviously, surely he was. The trouble is that people are still giving me names and saying, oh, maybe this guy, maybe that guy. And so far, it hasn't happened. Now, th there's a million reasons for that as well. BSB uh, is a very well-organised, very uh, very successful championship in its own right. It's a very successful business entity for its owners. They have rules which work that they can put a lot of people on the grid. Um, it's a very good product. And I think possibly the temptation for riders and certainly the motivation for the championship itself is to not lose their riders. Do you think it's a too good of a product where if you're a young rider, you're able to see that there's a big TV package with Eurosport, you're able to be a big star in terms of fans engagement, you're able to have a big following, you're able to have all the things that in the past you would have taken as being the trappings of being in a world championship, whereas now that's in a domestic championship, the money mightn't be that great for them, but everything else seems to be at that high level. It seems to be. Um, and that's the, the, I think that's the difficulty. Is it, it's it, it's a it's a very very good championship and it runs at a good level, but I keep hearing people tell me the strength and depth in BSB has never been better. Well, I think for BSB level that's probably true, but I, I, as with the whole point of this discussion, I don't see any of those people coming here at the same level that Jonathan came here, at the same level that Crutchlow came here, or Haslam or any of those other guys that uh, Tom Sykes became world champion from. All these people came from BSB. And that seems to have dried up. It's not just Britain. It's Australia and America and everywhere else as well. That's a difficulty. There is some light. Uh, obviously, Garrett Gerloff is now coming on to a game. Um, he's had some very good results. He's going to keep learning. Um, and people in America say that maybe Bobier would be an even better immediate entry here. He's certainly dominating America. What is not happening is that the system is not producing these guys to come through. The Italian Championship... Its entire reason to be, as well as having a national championship, is to find the next good super sport and super bike riders and in other classes, MotoGP riders. The whole point of the Italian Federation is to get people into world championship, get young Italian kids trained up fast and over here. And that link to UK, as the biggest example, but not the only example, appears to be broken. Yeah, and I think whenever you look at what we've seen over the years with the Italian Federation in particular, they would have seen all this horde of Spaniards doing all the winning and one two fives and then Moto3 and they just said, well, let's just set up our own team. When Fanati came in in 2012, he was racing for the Italian Federation. And then obviously over the course of the last few years, that's changed to being, instead of it being the Italian team, it's ended up being the VR46 Academy and all of their riders coming through. But we don't really have anything like that in the UK no, and um, and I think that is quite deliberate from the, the people in the UK. They want to keep all their own guys there, make the show as good as they can. They And I can totally understand why. I can also see from their point of view that many years ago, World Superbike came and swept all their best guys here almost in one or two goes, one or two years. We'd taken all the top competitors, like your Crutchlows and, and Sykes and Rays, over here in, in one go. And that maybe caused them a bit of an issue. So they're thinking, let's keep them here. When I speak to the people in the UK that organise things, they say, no, 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 we've got riders that can come through and, and, and that's fine. But I think it's a bit, they, they are much more business oriented than most national championships. And why not? It's their business. I'm not making any complaint about this, but maybe there needs to be an, a, a more 
uh, obvious ladder to get riders in here. But th it's not just that. It's what those riders have learned. It's the training those riders have had to come and take on a World Superbike with even a, a couple of steps up in ultimate spec. Um, and there seems to be no desire for people to buy wildcards anymore, partly because the last few wildcard outings that people had before they kind of really stopped altogether weren't exactly the same level as like Crutchlow and Sykes and all those guys did. And then before them, Hodgson and Walker and all those guys. Yeah, whenever you're looking back through the record books and you see Shaky coming in and winning two or three races as a wild card, you've got lots of riders that have done that from Britain. And then you look at what happened when Bradley Ray, when Jake Dixon, when you know any of these riders came through as a wild card at Donington, their home round, bearing in mind that they were running BSB spec bikes with less electronics and lots of other reasons for them to be a little bit off the pace. But they were well down the order. They were for Jake Dixon, he was fifty seconds behind the race winner at his home round, where he's got nothing to lose. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, the last thing I want to do is to to try and highlight is this some kind of talent gap, um, which I hope it isn't. I hope it's it's just training and what you're used to and so on. But I think when people come in, spend a lot of money, do a weekend, and get no result. It's not exactly encouraging for them or the next guy along to go, mm, I don't want to go to do this and not do a Bayless in Australia or a, a, a Hodgson at, at Donington or a Chris Walker at Donington. Mm, maybe I won't. Or, or the Shaky was the best example. Local track, local boy, the right tyres, full factory bike, basically the same, more or less the same Ducati as the, the factory guys were getting because that's what they were running in the UK and everywhere at the time. You just arrived on a level footing and actually with a bit of more track knowledge. Maybe you weren't as experienced as the other guys. Maybe you weren't, you couldn't go to all the other tracks and be quite that potent. But in your own place, where you'd been round a million times since you were a kid, you could show them up. We need to get this back again. It was one of the biggest things that we complained about when the nature of this championship changed was whatever you do, keep the link back to, to national championships because it was one of the things that, uh, for example, you go to Japan in MotoGP, and you create somebody like Abby overnight, woof, instant sensation. Hager would be on the podium or nearby. You know, people you'd never heard of suddenly straight there because they were all, they were running those bikes in their national championship. Um, we we need to get the link back to wildcards. It's another essential mix. And for the crowd, if you don't have a local guy literally in your own series, there might be five or six British riders in, in Superbike, but... I think the locals would still have a softer spot in somewhere like the UK where they love an underdog for the local BSB top rider to go and be even your own British guys that are competing at the World Championship. I just think it would be more of a tribal, another reason to go. We've given people a reason not to go to some of these races now because they don't see their own young riders or even experienced riders that have gone back again going out and showing, hey, I can still do this. And we need that needs to be addressed and no one really has maybe they can't maybe we're all just too different now maybe this is just a reality we have to live with but i hope not well i think that the reality we have is that a bsb spec bike is too slow to be competitive uh, and I well i don't think it's too slow i think the electronics are what makes the 20 lap performance i don't think there's such a huge difference there's an awful lot of uh, uh restricted parts in these things here They've, the power slowly crept up again but when we had much more tuned engines we lost 30 horsepower overnight from the best bikes and that's crept back up again but I don't think BSB bikes are particularly slow even though they're specs less because and they will put stuff on for the for the World Superbike weekend to do it but yes it's not a level playing field week to week 
you can improve the bike to come and do a, as a wild card ride. You can put extra stuff on and stuff. But obviously, a lot of teams just can't do that for funds. Maybe the, the organisers of this championship need to help them, literally, with help to pay for them to be there, which would be some kind of progress. There's a lot of things that can be done, but it is actually quite a big gap. And the technologies you say, the bikes aren't as fast. Yes, they're certainly not as sophisticated. And the people running them aren't experienced with the electronics, which is easily the most complicated aspect of of any uh, championship that's got relatively free electronics. It, it, it's much more than suspension. There's so many people in the world know about suspension, know about chassis setup, they know about the, how to make a motor fly, but how to make a bike work properly, saving the tyres, maximising grip, all the things that ele can, electronics can do for you, and especially on these big bikes in corner entry. It's all about entry now. It's not about exit and, and you know wheel spin control. That's old hat nearly. It's all about getting the bike to behave itself going into the corner and not wear out back tyres and put the rider off going in on his ideal line. It's just a factor of these massive four strokes. You need to have more control over the back end going into a corner with it because of the, the back pressure they generate. Yeah, and uh, what I was going to say was that with BSB, with their spec, as you said, Gordo, it's going to be over 20 laps impossible for them. For a Moto America rider, whenever we go to Laguna, they're having to adapt to Pirelli tyre. Yes, there's always something that stops them being a, an automatic changeover. Um, in theory, BSB should be easier because they're all running Pirellis. Um, but yeah, America's the closest one to us now. They've got pretty free electronics. Um, but the tyre change is a great thing. And there is nothing more profound in the behaviour of a motorcycle than the tyres you put on it. Because the Pirellis are completely different philosophy from almost anybody else's tyres. Um, and there's a reason for that where it's, it is a production championship it's based on a road product Pirelli do this as a form of development for the road product so there's nothing overly fancy inside the Pirellis they don't start sticking Kevlar in and carbon fibre and so on um, as a quite deliberate thing because what they want to do is use this as a, 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 shop, a marketing shop window to sell tyres to people and also a form of product development um, whereby they, when they bring a new tyre or a new idea, they bring it here. If it works here, then it's obviously going to work for high performance on the street or for people on track days. And a lot of Pirelli's businesses selling the same tyres to everybody all over the world, well, they again, they build deliberately a very wide temperature window, as wide as they can, into the product. Whereas in other tyre manufacturers that have got a great, like, for example, MotoGP, where there's a greater performance required, you know, with carbon brakes and all sorts of other things, those tyres are always going to be stiffer and a bit more trick, as it were. So it's the nature of those tyres are completely different. It's not all oh, slicks and oh, this one's a bit more grippy and that one's not. The, the rules have changed of what a racing tyre is in this, these days of single-make tyre. And for you, Gordo, like, what do you see as the, the ideal scenario? Is it where you've got the same regulations across all the different championships where you take World Superbikes down a level, you bring BSB up a level, you're able to have it where tyres aren't single make, you're able to work around different different ways? Or is there a lot of very big positives you can take from what you have right now? Because when I look at, especially the World SBK grid, very close field, we've got bikes that are very closely matched from each of the teams, you've got... You know, surprise winners, you've got guys that can come through and have a podium, you've got a team like Tenkate, they can come in mid-season and hit the ground running and be very competitive last year and then kick on over a winter. 
I think the outside world's got a weird idea about what a superbike and it's so expensive to do this and so expensive to do that. Yes, it's more expensive than racing at domestic level. What there is no ideal scenario because everybody has to do what works for them in their individual territories and so on. The global financial crash truly showed people how much money would never come back to racing anymore. We're racing on motorcycle money. We're not racing on external money to any great degree. Who are our huge sponsors in this paddock that are global international companies? Not enough. Even the, the big money deals in Spain and some of the bikes, other than the Repsols and so on in this world, there's loads of names in MotoGP bikes and I have no idea what that company is. It's not a global player, but it's a huge player in the Spanish-speaking world. There's too many differences now to unify things. The FIM and Dorna have both talked about that to me last week in, in Jerez about the desire to unify rules and allow people to come and race. Honestly, there are a lot of troubles if you don't use Pirelli tyres. That's their, their fundamental difference, I think. But in terms of somebody coming to World Superbiking, making a good showing with their own local domestic bike, it doesn't take an awful lot to get to the same spec as a World Superbike. It, it's not nothing, but it's not a huge amount. But remember, what's changed is the national championships not running superbikes anymore, as they've always been for like 20 years, 25 years, because of the global crash. They just couldn't afford to do it. There's reasons for this. No one's doing it for for the, you know for any reason except the necessity. Um, but I think it's actually not true to say that trying to get to the level of a world superbike, good bike, as Tinkat have shown. Everybody's got customer programs now. You can buy all those parts. The parts are limited. If you want to buy the same, literally the same suspension as the world champion, you can do it for nine grand. You know, and if, if you're running an international race team and you haven't got nine grand to improve your performance, well, you're in trouble for starters. That's, that's, I know it sounds a lot of money. It's a different, a lot of money to me. But as an overall racing spend, you can attain almost the same level bike. What you can't buy is the factory expertise. What you can't buy is the best technicians unless you pay them a lot of money. How you get to these two things aligned is difficult. Somebody's going to have to go down, but if the manufacturers can't come here, is a very important point, and play with electronics, with development, then they won't bother. And we won't have a World Superbike Championship. It just won't exist because the people who are fundamentally underwriting this in the absence of international sponsors are the way we used to have are the manufacturers one by one. What has to happen is that the, the, they have to find a way of, of narrowing, of widening the base of the pyramid and reducing the height of the pyramid. And then you'll get more people able to make that, that jump. And if we've lost the days where people can come in and win from domestic, that's fine. But if somebody came here and finished top five in all three races of their home, home race, phew, people would be bouncing. I mean, we would be bouncing because you would have beaten 10 really good riders and really good teams who are used to this championship. I think that's more of a problem, is who's going to do that now? So it's a kind of, both things need to be improved. We need to bring the, the, the national series up and we need to make this maybe even more accessible. But you then risk the whole life of this championship by removing the reason why the factories want to come here. To me, you need to have some kind of promotion relegation thing going on, and that has to be done by the organisers. The individuals involved uh, do have an interest in that, but for me, the organisers have to get together with the national championships and say, okay, who's who around all these championships is the best team, and they get help financially the first year or two. Well, if that's the case, Gordo, we saw what's happened when 
SMR came into World SBK. Through the words out of my mouth. Five years ago, say, yeah. they were expecting to be able to win races on a BMW. They were expecting to then, oh, well, when we change to Aprilia, everything's going to be great. Oh, we're factory BMW now, so it's going to be even better. And what have they had to show for it? Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to do this uh, because there's so many other good uh, riders and teams now. We've had good seasons and bad seasons in terms of pure competitiveness. We've had seasons where virtually everybody was on a Ducati. We've had factory seasons and non-factory seasons. Um, right now, uh, it's very difficult to break into this championship, because, thankfully, because the championship's got very strong again and strength and depth. That, that is the key thing, strength and depth. Um, but Sean Muir, it was, it was, you and I were standing there in Australia listening, speaking to Sean when he came into the paddock for the first time with some of the other, uh, uh foreign journalists. And we just, uh, I totally admired his ambition and, and so on. But we knew it was going to be a lot harder to come from a national championship, even a very good one like BSB and, and hit the ground at, at, at winning speed. It was just going to be tough. Um, and that is, that's not necessarily got any easier, which is why I'm saying there has to be some kind of help to get people in there. And yeah, there's too much disconnect in racing now. We've now got, I, th I honestly think the gap between here and MotoGP and the gap from here to national championships has never been bigger in, a, in too many ways, not just one way, not just technology. I think it's just, we're now stratifying and we don't want them to become set. Uh, we need to do something now to start changing that uh, or else we're just going to get all the uh, so-called rejects from MotoGP coming here and we're going to block off any talent that's coming up from, from any of the domestic championships. Something has to be done, as politicians like to say, but we really do. If we, we're interested in the long-term future of all of this, we have to get we have to get things changed. It's very successful now this championship is great now. It's really good. It's always been good, but it's it's particularly good now. Um, and there's plenty of opportunities for this post-Jonathan Ray generation. But where are they? Where are they coming from? If we're not just going to become moto, uh, mini MotoGP? And that would be, everybody fails then. I think that's a failure of everybody. Okay, well, thanks for joining us, Gordo, again. And uh, as I said, we're going to keep it short this week just because we've got all the action from the Czech Republic as well. But uh, thanks for joining us, Gordo. And uh, hopefully it's not too long until we're back in Aragon and able to talk about what we've seen this weekend. And then obviously a back-to-back -back weekend in Aragon means that uh, we're definitely going to see a very clear picture developing by the time we get to back to Spain. Cheers, Steve. Well, interesting stuff there from our World Superbike reporters, uh, Stephen English and Gordon Ritchie, uh, talking there from Portimao. And uh, that pretty much brings us to the end of our discussion today for uh, the Paddock Pass podcast and what has to be one of the most uh, ridiculous weekends of racing that I can remember watching. MotoGP, World Superbikes, even BSB, so much action there. Uh, it has been worth the wait. We have had to wait for the uh, the 2020 season to really kick off uh, in true style. But, uh, well, it's been worth every second of that wait, I must say. These past couple of weekends, we'll be coming right back at you with another action-packed show next week, this time next week. So look out for us then, because we'll be speaking about the Austrian Grand Prix. And guess what? We'll then be coming back at you the weekend after that as well, because we have the Styrian Grand Prix, which is the second Austrian round to be held on consecutive weekends. So, uh, yeah, 
It's going to be an action-packed month uh, for all involved. It's round about now that I should remind you that we have social media channels, which you should be following for updates on the uh, Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, We're going to be pushing our social channels a little bit more with uh, some highlights and segments from the shows. So you really want to be following us on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod on Facebook as well. That's facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast. And as you may or may not know, we have a Patreon page as well, because uh, obviously this is uh, this is quite an expensive business, traveling around the world to uh, watch motorcycle racing to try and keep up to date with all the goings on in the paddock. And uh, well, basically you can access some very interesting added features on our Patreon page for as little as $3 a month. So uh, if you're feeling generous, you've got a little bit of uh, extra spare change in your pocket at the end of the month, then why not contribute to us? Because that makes a little bit of a difference for Dave, Steve, Gordon, Jensen, producer Brian, and I going forward. And uh, yeah, everything is uh, is obviously, all donations are greatly appreciated. So uh, that's pretty much it from me. Thanks to Steve English and Gordon Ritchie from Portimao. Thank you to uh, the vested uh, David uh, David Emmett in his uh, in his office in uh, the Netherlands in, in my Zoom room, dude. My Zoom room. This is uh, this is the new normal in MotoGP. This is the place that I sit and uh, uh, do all of the rider debriefs. And um, uh, w- one more note for our Patreon subscribers: if you send um, uh, some send us some money, then uh, Neil will be able to afford a shirt. <laughs> yes, I'm currently in a room which uh, doesn't have any AC and it's uh, in the height of the, the European summer. So uh, it's not a normal occurrence, I'd like to say. Uh, but uh, yes. So what time? I think it's uh, when we're starting to talk about uh, the level of roping that uh, we're currently uh, we currently have. David, it's probably time to, to get off the airwaves and uh, stop offending people. But uh, thank you again for uh, for listening to us, dear listener. Check us out. Next week as well, we'll be back at you with another episode. Until then, bye-bye. Yeah, I'd just like to apologize for derobing uh, partway into the show. but Yeah, it was it was very slightly, um, uh, it very slightly took me off, caught me off guard. Uh, me off. Just all that talk about KTM was, oh, you know. Oh, <laughs> <thank> <laughs> God. Hashtag professional.